This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. You can hear me okay? I can. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm excited. I've had quite a morning this morning, so I'm actually really looking forward to like sitting down and just connecting. (laughs) (laughs) So my guest today is Rachel Rose. She's an educator, writer, and contemplative artist fusing mindfulness practices with the creative arts. She's a registered expressive arts consultant and educator with the International Expressive Art Therapy Association. And through her educational portal workshop, Muse, she invites people to come learn about creative knowing as a way of learning how to practice creative mindfulness in their own lives. And Rachel Rose is the author of this new book that we'll be talking about, Creating Stillness, Mindful Art Practices and Stories for Navigating Anxiety, Stress, and Fear, and also a lot more. So Rachel Rose, Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. So how did you get into all of this? You know, creativity and creative ways of knowing, and also discovering the stillness part of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think like many people, I have kind of always had a history, what I would have called as like dabbling in the arts, right? Like I found myself, you know, in performing arts, I found myself writing, I found myself doing visual arts, those sorts of things. And for a long time, the story I was telling myself was like, you know, why can't you just commit to one, right? Like, why can't you double down on one of these? Why are you always kind of flipping from one thing to the next? But, uh, you know, that was kind of the story. And I'm not the only one who, who finds themselves in that realm. So, you know, after I spent many years in academia and trying out all the careers and those sorts of things. I I kind of always kept finding myself pulled towards the arts and all along always kind of find myself 
you know, moving from one creative medium to the next. And after I finished my master's, actually, I realized like, oh, I really need to do like an art therapy or something, you know, like I, it wasn't quite what I wanted it to be. And so I discovered the whole world of expressive arts. And it was one of those things where I just instantly was felt known, right? Because the expressive arts is really about harnessing and embracing all of the arts um, and really recognizing that the different mediums speak to each other, right? And that we can benefit when we take something from one medium to the next. It's really about intermodal expression. And so, you know, all at once I felt quite seen and, and recognized and there was a whole community of people who really validated what I'd been doing in my life for so long. So I pursued my studies and my registrations and that sort of thing. And I think um, that really kind of validated the expressive work that I was doing in my own life, um, which was very much about bringing emotions, bringing feelings, bringing kind of knots or tensions into my creative practice and following whatever medium seemed to, to help me at the most. But then at the same time, in my own personal life, I was moving towards exploring and trying to learn principles of mindfulness, right? I had a, you know, a traditional and still do to varying degrees, a traditional meditation practice and, um, you know, have really tried to learn and listen to the the principles of mindfulness around, you know, beginner's mind and non-striving, some of these kind of more um, ways of being in the world. And so, it took me a little while to realize that I was bringing them together. Um, but I was right, it was just felt natural. And so what I realized I was doing was that I was using my creative expression to know my world, right. And in this case, what I was trying to know was mindfulness. And I think it's an important distinction just to start with is that we can use this kind of notion of that I'm calling creative knowing, which is really just understanding and knowing the world through the arts, but we can employ it towards anything, right? Like we could employ it towards understanding our relationship with our partner or the land we live in, or maybe our professional practice or our identity, those sorts of things. Like we can use creative knowing to know many things in the world, but I, in this case, was using it towards mindfulness, right? And so what I found in my practice, just to answer your question around the stillness, is that's where that's where clarity, calm, a centeredness, a peace came to me, right? Was uh, I would have this tension that was happening, you know, a big feeling or a stress in my life. And I would move into my creative practice and I would kind of take some of that understanding that I had around some of mindfulness principles or whatever they might be. And then that's where I could really sink into it, right? Um, that's where it seemed the resonance of it started to kind of populate and kind of connect for me, right, was in that creative practice, right. And so, yeah, it's still something I'm practicing. And still something I'm trying to support other folks to do too, right, is, is find that calm center through creativity. So for me, when I was reading this, during the first part of the book, I started experiencing a kind of anxiety and resistance to this feeling that, uh, this kind of old familiar feeling that I was supposed to be doing something here and, mm. and actually be creative. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, maybe not feeling creative or, or distrusting my ability to, you know, perform. So I would love for you to talk about how most of us have a lot of misconceptions about what creativity really is. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say too that you kind of felt like, like, oh no, not one more thing that I'm not doing in my life. And that makes sense, right? But I think that the thing to recognize is just what you're saying is that creative expression happens like hundreds of thousands of times in our in our day, right? Like anytime we are making something problem solving, we are engaging in a creative act, right? Um, We tend to think about creativity in the traditional arts, like it's the thing that we've been kind of culturally conditioned to think about as visual arts as like the top pinnacle, right? You know, and then moving into like, you know, perhaps like performing arts, and you know, there's a little bit of a hierarchy that we have. But really, in reality, when we make a meal, we are engaging in a creative act. When we are faced with a problem and trying to understand, you know, what should I do or, you know, what, what's the solution here? We're engaged in a, in a creative act. One of the things I really like to kind of talk about in this context is there's um, an ancient Greek word that's called poesis. You know, it's a thought, an idea that's been around since you know, Plato and those sorts of times, Aristotle, those sorts of times. And the idea of poesis is really to make something that wasn't there before, right? So this notion that we are making and in the process of making is how we are living, right? It's how we find meaning. So anytime we have made something that wasn't there before, we are engaging in poesis, which is what creativity is. To me, those are interchangeable um, in the context of how I interpret them, at least, right? So you know, you woke up this morning and maybe you made a cup of coffee and that cup of coffee was a connection that you had with other, you know, other players, right? That somebody cut those beans, somebody helped grow those beans, somebody roasted them and shipped them around the world. And you are kind of performing the last act of making something. And of course, the enjoyment of of making that cup of coffee is really reveling in the creation of that, right? So I think it's important to think about just the ways that you are making things that aren't necessarily there. And it's interesting to hear you say that you feel like you're not maybe creating because you have this lovely platform. You have the Magical Mystery Tour here that you've created, right? So of course you are, you know, you, we are we are only speaking to each other because of something that you have created. And I would challenge people to think that, you know, in their professional lives or elsewhere, they are often creating something that wasn't there before, Right. So I think there's that part to it too, right? It's just to really recognize that connection of it. And then I think the other side of it too is to really lower the stakes on what we think creativity, even in the traditional arts is, right? Like, I think it's important for us to recognize that we don't have to be skilled at what we're doing here, right? It can be about engaging in some kind of expressive act too, right? So I think that's part of where the fear and the anxiety comes from, from folks is that they feel like whatever they create is going to be evaluated and needs to be quality and they don't have skills and those sorts of things. But, you know, if you speak to any kind of art therapist or expressive art therapist, there's often this story that they will find with people where like, oh, you know, I used to be creative, but I stopped doing that in about grade three or four, right? And when you really dig into that, that kind of as young beings, we're creating all the time, we're playing, we're exploring our surroundings, making things. And then once they are subject to that evaluation of the world, suddenly we feel we we suppress that desire, right? That's really what it is. The desire hasn't gone away. It's just that it's been suppressed. And sometimes we find 
that we will let that desire to create come through other channels that are perhaps more acceptable. Yep. Like when we're young and we get our first criticism or first sense of disappointment from an adult or authority figure and it, and it sort of kills our, our passion or our connection to, to that natural state of creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that creating something. So if we think about it in this context of poesis, making something that wasn't there before or creating however you want to define it is a tremendously vulnerable act, right? It is an integrated thing that we're doing, right? It is our, it is our thoughts. It is our feelings. It is our bodies. It is our sensory perceptions. And we are putting it out there in some capacity, whether it's like through dance or movement or, you know, a a product or something that we've created or, you know, something that that is tangible that we can touch. It is, it is all wrapped up in that. And so it's important to remind ourselves how vulnerable it can be to create and express, right? So as you're talking about, you know, that criticism that happens when we're young, that kind of deflates us, like, honestly, for a lot of people, they can remember still as adults, like, that moment, right? That person, right? Whether it was a teacher or a peer, and it was when their vulnerability was on display that they were harmed in some way by somebody else and and nobody helped them kind of process that or make sense of that or or find resilience on the other side of that, right? So then it it perpetuates and lingers throughout their lives. Right. It's kind of like an early experience of shame. And one of the things about shame is that we hide it. We don't want to share mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. experience with anybody, even even the people that we might trust the most. We we're so afraid of being seen in that light that those things get buried and they remain kind of like cornerstones of our personality or or our dysfunctional personality from there, yeah. there on. Yeah. And you know, it's important to think too, like like I think it's important to think just even in the global context. So that personal experience where you're talking about where shame might be kind of suppressing it. But if we also think about creative expression in like kind of a global sense and like a big kind of bird's eye view sense, looking through time and space, like we recognize that creative expression has existed as long as human beings have, right? Like cultures are every culture through any time and space in history has had some form of creative expression that has bound them together, helped them make sense of whatever is happening in their world, right? Through song, dance, story, like, you know, visual arts, those sorts of things, let alone the problem solving or the tools that they're making, or, you know, we can track this through time and space. So, so this isn't something that is out there or somewhere else. This is a part of ourselves that exists. And unfortunately, for many of us has been kind of dampened or suppressed or harmed in some way. But really, the sense making and the connection that we feel in our cultures and in our society, it's like a place that we're missing, really, I would argue, especially in the Western world, right? I mean, we it never fully goes away. But but when we you know, when we move it online to Instagram, where it's subject to likes and <laughs> shares and those sorts of things, you got to wonder if it's you know, I don't really know that that is meeting, scratching the same itch as as it once would have been for us and whatever our ancient culture would have been, right? It's still subjecting it to that evaluation process, right? Which is where the harm comes. Yeah. When you brought social media in, into it, I was like, oh my God, I, I see so many people putting out things 
on like through Facebook and they're just like begging for likes. They're just Mm -hmm. begging for acceptance to be recognized that, oh yes, I'm a good person or I'm a creative person or I'm a brilliant person or, or whatever it is, just seeking to fill some need that, that perhaps they never found anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. Right. And it's, it's funny just for me personally too, right. You know, in my introduction of my bio, I'm calling myself a contemplative artist, right? Because I'm trying to um, make space for my feelings and my, um, you know, the stillness piece to come through, through my expressions and that sort of thing. Yet I'm still somebody who's on social media sharing, right? And what is interesting is I'm, I'm really cognizant of trying not to be performative about it, but I'm also really trying to recognize that I also can be a role model for people around what we share and how we share and the meaning that it finds in those realms. Because whether we like it or not, this digital realm isn't really going to go away, right? So I want to show people like, what if I put something really ugly up on on Instagram or Facebook, but it's ugly, but it has like meaning, right? It has like, it's where I found an insight. It's where it has like something special in there for me. Like, so if we're going to use the same metric to evaluate it, where you're looking at other things or other insights or, you know, images or things that are you know, it really requires a different set of eyes and a different set of ears to attune to it because it's not speaking in the same language that we're used to seeing in Facebook, right? So it's something I'm really aware of in terms of how I share my creations. And, you know, I've got images throughout the book and I'm telling stories about creations throughout the book. And I like that it sits in that context, right? That like the the things that I'm sharing are images alongside this broader context, because I think if you were to pluck those out and put them somewhere else, people might be scratching their heads wondering, you know, what is this, right? Mm, I love that. It's like engaging in the art of like making mistakes or, or creating ugliness rather than trying to create something beautiful and something that we can claim that reinforces us as a, as a good person or a creative person. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm also like, I mean, ugly is like a convenient word to use here. But in terms of like, my own practice, I'm trying not to label things as good or ugly, right? Like, I I don't think that that label is useful. And so I'm sharing it here as a way to kind of communicate (laughs) what we're talking about here. But, you know, as I think, as I move ahead in my life, I'd like to be able to to really role model that non judgmental piece around it, right? Is it's like, it's not ugly or bad or good or right or wrong, right? It's just it just is right. And so, you know, we want to evaluate it based on that, right? It's just it's, yeah, it just helps us like kind of communicate it and make sense of it. Just as you were speaking there too, it made me think there's a client who I've worked with for a long time. And she told me this the other day, she goes, oh, I have a Rachel Rose drawer of stuff. And she says, it's all the stuff that she's made through all the workshops or all the things that we've done together. And it's kind of this like bizarre, wonderful, beautiful drawer of like things, just like stuff that maybe wouldn't make sense if you if you know or her child or something were to open it they would be like what what is this like yarn and this this thing here and these words right like sometimes it it comes together in in interesting surprising ways and so i think that's part of this practice is really being ready that you might be surprised right you might you might make things that you would have never conceived before or in the process of creating these things that when reflected upon are confusing or messy or you don't know what to make of them, or just even seem like outright disasters, 
you could have had just so much pleasure in the process of doing them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, that's what we're focusing on here is the process of it. Right. And I think what this person would tell you is that she knows everything in that Rachel drawer. She knows what those means. It's the outside eye that would be a bit confused about it. Right. Because she was in that process, making sense of those things and and probably has like a fondness or a connection to each one of those things. And, you know, the notion of process over product is something that you'll hear often in art therapy circles or expressive arts circles. Right. And it really is that notion of where are we focusing, right? And are we focusing on the products that we make and evaluating the product that we make at the end? Or is whatever happens in the process, what we're interested in? And, you know, for me, and the mindfulness component of this too, it's the process is where the richness is, the process is where we can do the observation, we can notice our thoughts, our feelings, or, you know, whatever bubbles for up for us in the creative process, if we attune to that and really try to stay with that, whatever happens for us in the process, then that's where the meaning comes from. And so yeah, we end up with products sometimes, although sometimes we don't, sometimes we destroy the products that we make, or we make ephemeral things that are meant to kind of dissolve or go away. And and so there can be the product with it, but the process is, is what we're really trying to attune ourselves to and pay attention to. Yeah. And it reminded me that I think it was like just after or shortly after finishing reading your book, I had this realization and you had even touched on it in the book that um, creativity is also the spaciousness that we can just be. Mm. You know, if we allow ourselves to just be that or fully immerse in that experience of spaciousness and how a lot of people or traditions talk about creativity as like the the womb or the, the infinite void out of which everything emerges from. So one way of engaging with creativity is just to immerse ourselves in that spacious realm of, of infinite possibility rather than actually doing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where, what, like when you had that realization, can I just turn the tables on you for a second here? Can you give us an example of like how you feel like that shows up for you, that spaciousness and the creativity? Oh, I do that all the time. It's one of my favorite practices in the morning when I have time, which is pretty often I will, you know, s- stay in bed, curled up in fetal position, and I will just indulge in that kind of liminal space for mm. for as much time as as I want. And sometimes nothing arises out of it. And sometimes I have like wonderful sort of like liminal dreams or liminal imaginal experiences, sort of like daydreaming only slipping into more of that semi-conscious spaciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thrive in that. And I also often read in the morning in bed, and I especially love the creative processes that you lead us through at the end of each chapter. And that's one of the ways that I would engage in that way, in liminal space, and just taking your prompts and your questions and suggestions, and then coming up with my own, though I often found that I resonated with at least one or two of the prompts or questions or intentions that you offer as examples. And I just love doing that kind of stuff. A lot of the books that I read have prompts like that in different ways, in different 
kind of dynamic engagements. And I love doing that. And I especially love when I'm given a prompt that I didn't think of myself. So, mm-hmm. so it's just wonderful to keep exploring new realms of possibility. And these are all really self-exploratory realms mm-hmm. of possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really important to me when I was putting the book together and writing to make sure that this was, well, there's a few things that were important, but in this context, what was really important was that it wasn't passive. Right. So I think there's so much in this culture where we can just passively consume and observe other people's stuff or their process or hear their insights. Right. And so that's useful. Right. Like there's a benefit to that. But we really need to make sure that we're stacking the scales in our lives so that we're not just observing other people's insights, processes, hearing their thoughts. Right. And so we have to create space and protect space, just as you're saying you're doing in bed in the morning, right? For no other inputs besides what's in your sensory, you know, awareness, and maybe something that you intentionally bring in something you want to think about, or those sorts of things so that you can start to make your own stories, you can start to make your own insights and make your own connections. And again, I always go back to that piece around poesis, right? Like, to make something that wasn't there, whether it's an insight or otherwise, that's where the meaning happens, right? And so, especially in this culture, I really see the tipping of that scales where there's so much passivity, like we can really just be passive consumers of other people's insights and, you know, wisdom. And so we really do need to be able to get out there and do our own. So yeah, in part two of the book, I've got a creative invitation at the end of each chapter. I tell you about my story around what how what art that I made. I'm trying to show you what that looks like. I'm telling you client stories. I'm kind of introducing the concepts of mindfulness through other stories through history and time and different cultures and pop culture and that sort of thing. But I wanted it to end with now you go out and you make your own story, you make your own thing and see what resonates for you, right? Because it might be that you find something completely different than what I did or what the clients did or or that sort of thing, right? So it's a way to make the book more active. And I love the way in that latter part of of the book, you also talk about rewriting our own stories or seeing them from a different perspective and or or even writing new chapters of our lives and imagining new things new what if stories mm-hmm. whether they're realistic or whether they're wildly imaginative and way out there that yeah. i love doing that i mean what i really love is is entering the space of that that realm of possibility and then letting letting these these things just unfold naturally. And sometimes nothing comes out of it. And sometimes something wildly delicious comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point too, is that like, we always want there to be like magic, right? But it's like, sometimes it's just sometimes it's just a process, right? But if you stay with it, sometimes, you know, you will get those kind of magic nuggets, but the ones that are just, you know, kind of more mundane are special too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even when nothing comes out of it, you're still getting to kind of just be in that kind of stillness or or just state of relaxation and just allowing. I mean, it's good practice. Mm-hmm. It's good practice for, for learning how to create spaciousness and allowing for new possibilities to pop up whenever they happen to do so, because we're not really in control of any of this, are we? 
Right, right. That's the thing, right? And I think the piece around like rewriting our stories and that sort of thing, like, I mean, that's just something I have felt in my life and have, I don't know, I just feel a special connection to around just being super flexible, right? Just really like every now and then in life, just like laying it all out on the table and just reevaluating, right? Really letting go of whatever it is we think we know, right? And I think that that's kind of a lot of what mindfulness has offered me, right? Is that you, you think you understand something in some way, but when you kind of pull back and you can change your perspective on it, you recognize like, oh, nothing is as fixed or as firm as I thought it was, right? My interpretation of myself, my thoughts, my experiences, like they're all very fluid. And so to me, I think that's one of the reasons why creativity is so well suited to prime us to be in that state is it really invites our imaginations to the table, right? And it invites us to be in a space of not knowing. And so that can be really, really uncomfortable for people, right? (laughs) For me, in my practice, like people want to make art. They're like, oh, I like art. It's cool. I, you know, I want to make pretty things. And then they'll come to me and work with me. And I'm like, hey, now we're, I'm not going to give you direction. We're going to just be with this not knowing, right? And that, that experience of being like, but aren't you going to tell me what to do here or there? And I'm like, no, we're going to follow your impulse. You have to turn, you have to, you have to find the guidance around this more. I mean, obviously I'm offering some structure and direction, but not as much as people would be used to having in their lives. So it really sits us in that place of not knowing and really having to attune to what is happening moment to moment to see what emerges. Right. And that can be really scary for people. But on the other side of that, they can find like, oh, the thing I thought was, is actually kind of starting to crumble, right? Or there's much softer edges around that, right? Because they've brought their imagination to the table and they've brought their, they've really attuned to the moment and they can kind of start to disidentify with those thoughts or those stories or those kind of narratives that maybe had been guiding them before. And letting go of that notion of creating something beautiful. Right. Yes, that's right. That's the other thing too, right? Um, Or finding that beauty can look in ways that they didn't expect to, right? That like beauty is, doesn't know the bounds of what you thought it was before too, right? Yeah. Like our priorities can really change when we look at things in different ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like using creative ways of knowing as a way of connecting to what you refer to as like our holes, the holes in our being or like the hurts or the wounds and the reactive emotions that we have, like anger and shame and how we can use creativity and that sort of creative way of knowing and being as like a key to unlock our way into or underneath or inside of those holes in our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that might be something that is kind of, I don't know, maybe not different, but like something that is kind of not what you're typically hearing in the cultural conversations. So this notion of holes that you're talking about, it's like what I start the book with, it's this idea that we all have like holes within us, right? That there's like, as we age, as we move through life, that there are like pieces of us that might go missing, right? And I 
brought forward this idea and this metaphor mostly as a way to show compassion around if we could see each other's holes, you know, if we were walking down the street and we see somebody's, you know, got a giant hole right in the center of them that the wind is blowing through, right? And then the person next to them kind of has like little pebbles all over or somebody has a fresh hole, those sorts of things. Like, I think we would see each other differently, right? And I think the thing about the holes metaphor that is important too is it's like that we all have them, right? So you might feel like there's a part of you that's missing or gone, but the reality is nobody doesn't have a hole somewhere, right? And and the causes of these holes can be everything from, you know, childhood trauma to, you know, divorce to grief to, you know, anxiety to something you're dealing with in your work life or whatever, you know, all the things that kind of can pain us, right? And so the idea is that we all have those. And if we could see them in each other, I think we would have more compassion. And so the idea isn't to fill the holes, right? Isn't to like go out and find the thing that's going to fill that hole and patch it up, but to instead find beauty in those holes. And I open the book with that metaphor to ground us in kind of, you know, the knowing of this work and how we're, how we're approaching it, that we're not fixing things or patching things up, but that we're celebrating what's happening there. And finding peace with it. Um, And then later on in the book, I tell a story of my own creative practice, where holes kind of ended up having a really important role for me too. And I I think this story is interesting, too, because it kind of throws away the idea of like what traditional art looks like too. So, you know, in this story, I talk about being newly divorced with my son and recognizing that, you know, my idea of what our family is going to be is it's not, it's no longer the same, right? Like I'm never going to be able to bridge that and, uh, you know, have this kind of wholesome family of me, him and his father together again, it's going to look different, however it moves forward. And so there was a lot of grief in that for me and recognizing like, oh, you know, what will this be? And so um, I tell the story of kind of moving through my day and my life and feeling this, you know, kind of sadness and grief and finding all these objects that my son and I had actually been collecting for years, like shells with holes in it and rocks with holes in it and all these kind of natural objects. And I just kind of started to look around and see, I have so many beautiful objects with holes in them, right? Like I have so many things. And so I pull all these objects together and wanted to kind of present them in an artful way because they seem to speak so loudly to me about how beautiful these holes can be about how I can really celebrate kind of this, this change that has happened, right? That it doesn't need to be a hole in the context that we would think about it being a deficit, but that it can be a thing of beauty instead, right? And so uh, in the book, I have a photo of it as well, too. And I really like to think about that photo of those holy objects that my son and I collected as like almost like a family portrait, right? Like a way to be like, this is beautiful. Whatever we have now is beautiful. And this is this is what we've got. So that's just another example of how traditional capital A arts as well, like some of the invitations I'm asking you to do here, are like find objects, like go out into the woods and look at things as well, too, as a way to kind of celebrate whatever, whatever is going on for you. And the way you use found objects and the way you approach art, you sort of take a kind of a a ritualistic approach to it. And you, you use the term ritual in the book. And even though I have my own experience, including very profound experiences with rituals, there's a part of me that, that still wonders, you know, what is ritual? What is that? It's like, there's a part of me that still doesn't really understand the concept, or it's trying to think of it conceptually, 
when all I have are these very visceral experiences of it. And so when somebody talks about ritual or using ritual or creating a ritual, I don't know what they're talking about. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. It makes complete sense. As somebody who has like a whole chapter on ritual, and has, like you said, written about ritual a few times in the book, I completely resonate with that. And this is what I think is I think, you know, like I am a white cis woman, you know, in Canada, and I don't have any culture. What I have is like, you know, neoliberal consumer globalization Like, I didn't come from a tradition of spirituality or, you know, ethnic traditions or otherwise. So I I grew up with like, you know, the tradition is, is that you buy crap at Christmas, right? Like, (laughs) give it to one another. So, but there seems to be this like longing that we have. And it's interesting, as I'm even talking about this book, like, ritual seems to be the thing that people want to talk about, right? Because I feel like people feel like, I want that. I I wish I had that like ritual that feels that feels safe. That feels good. Right. And so in my practice, I don't think I was like, formally thinking like, okay, I'm going to make a ritual and I'm going to do this. But I think in retrospect, I would realize like, oh, I guess that is a ritual. And I'm all about like, make it up, make up your own ritual, right? It's great if you have something to draw from or a cultural tradition or, or, you know, something else like, that's a beautiful container to hold yourself within and will make sense for you in your life. But if you're anything like me and you have a dearth and don't even know what it is, then it can be a creative space as well too, right? Like you can make up your own rituals of how you want to, to hold space for yourself. And I think the important thing for me in recognizing why rituals have existed through time and space and various cultures, like it's again, along with creativity, ritual is something that is quite prevalent is that it holds us, right? It it delineates what's happening before to what's happening now, right? It holds a safe container of space for us, right? So when we don't have those kind of anchors or kind of something to hold the vast spaciousness with, then it can be difficult to navigate where everyday life ends and where it's something sacred is too, right? So it's something I'm learning about for sure. But I would say the way I'm learning about it is by knowing myself and figuring out when do I need a ritual? What does this ritual look like? And like, do I always need that? Like what, you know, what, or is this just something that is a one-off ritual? Those sorts of things. Yeah, I totally relate. And in the book, you tell the story of Richard Wagamese, who actually asks, you know, what is ceremony? And ceremony is kind of a kissing cousin to ritual. So could you tell us about his experience? Yeah, Richard Wagamese's book, the quote that I'm pulling from there is Ember's. So yeah, the book is beautiful. I will just kind of start while I'm pulling it up here. So the book is full of his meditations and his thoughts. He's uh, an indigenous writer and thinker. I I believe he's passed now, actually. He's Ojibwe. I'm just going to actually read this part to you and then kind of talk about it afterwards. So I'll start back here. It says, each of our expressions is a ritual bridging our past to our future and connecting us to something larger than ourselves. Ojibwe author and storyteller Richard Wagamese asks old woman, an elder spirit he often speaks to through prayer and writing, what the purpose of ceremony is. And she replies, to lead you to yourself, to choose what leads you to the highest vision you can have for yourself, and then to choose what allows you to express that. 
what you express, you experience, what you experience, you are. So, I mean, to me, this quote just so deeply talks about that notion that I've been talking about, I keep going back to around poesis, right? And so, you know, you're looking towards yourself, there's an inner listening and an inner experience of being quiet, which I think is the stillness piece, right? We have to be very quiet and very still. And then we have to listen to that kind of internal experience. And that internal experience is trying to connect us to this higher vision of ourselves, as he says, right? And then when we express that, when we listen to that internal piece and we express it out, that becomes our experience. That's that notion of poesis, right? It takes it out of just the thought realm or the embodied whatever realm and brings it into the world in a real practical way, right? Not practical, maybe that's not the word, but in a, in a tangible way, right? And it becomes part of our experience the more we take this inner peace and express it outwards it's what we're doing with our time and our energy and it's how we're making sense and how we are making and literally shaping the world around us right yeah i think in a lot of the traditional creativity books that are out there a lot of the kind of seminal ones like elizabeth gilbert's big magic talks about this um even i'm just reading rick rubin's new book about creativity um a little bit of stephen pressfield's work there's this notion that there's like this kind of external muse that there's this kind of thing that comes from the ether to you right and wants to express itself through you right that it's chosen you as a vessel to kind of become embodied through, right? And I like that, right? I like the idea that it is something that connects you to something bigger. But I, I would also say that what is maybe different for me and my understanding of creative expression and where Richard Wagamese is kind of thinking is a little more where I tend to sit at this time and point at, like, at least is that I feel like there is this interplay between yourself and the ether, if that makes sense, right? This like, this place around who the deeper you are, the wiser version of you, the the kind of observer, the witness in you. I don't think it's just this external giant kind of God hand that <laughs> taps you and says, put this into the world. I think there's a little more of an interplay and dynamic piece around, you know, your your own journey, your own stuff, your own self and whatever way that is, that there's a little more of a dance happening there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're in constant conversation with mm -hmm. that, whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it a, a divine principle or all that is. And it's a mutual dance. Even yeah. though we may think of ourselves as being these infinitesimally tiny temporary beings in this incredibly huge, vast universe, I like to think of us as still being absolutely integral to all that is. Mm -hmm. And we have our place, you know, how, <laughs> whatever our, our sense of insecurities and anxieties, or how disconnected we are from our sense of, of who we really are, we have an essential place in this universe, just by virtue of being here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a belonging. A yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. You know, even if we don't feel like we belong we absolutely do belong just because we're we're here. That's evidence of that. Yeah, 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 right. And I think that like the stillness piece and however people try to find it is like basically remembering that, right? It's basically like finding a space and finding a way to really recognize that 
we're part of, you know, that we're connected, right? That there's like something we sit within something bigger than we can know, right? And so that's like the return to knowing that again and again and again. Yes. And considering how in our culture, we are brought up to be so disconnected from our sense of who we really are. You write about Stuart Firestein's notion that knowledge generates ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the, the listeners here might recognize the notion of like the Dunning-Kruger effect or something like that, right? But basically the notion is that, you know, any expert in any field really recognizes that the more they go into this, the less they know. Like it's a universal principle, right? And it kind of encourages us to, in the the reference that you're making there, there's kind of an encouragement to be like a little bit suspect of people who seem to think that, well, not a little bit, to be suspect of, of anybody who thinks that they know, right? That they have like figured this out, right? I mean, all we have to do is like, as human beings dip into like, nutrition research or something like that to realize like, didn't we have this figured out? Like, oh, no, it's much more complex than that. Right. And I think that that principle, not to say that science can't teach us things or that there aren't pieces around it. But even the most traditional hard sciences will recognize like, oh, you know, the deeper we go into this, the more we realize there's just so much more at play here. Right. And I think that that is the invitation to be in that place of not knowing and seek it, in fact, right, to really look for and want to move towards a place where we may have some understanding, and we might, you know, be collecting kind of an awareness, I would say more than understanding, but to really allow ourselves to surrender to the fact that even if we feel like we've got it, whatever it is figured out now, we have to kind of soften our attachment to that and be willing to let that go. Mm hmm. You know, oddly enough, I had never heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect before. Oh, no, yes. So this really stood out for me. And could you tell us the first rule of the Dunning-Kruger club? (laughs) (laughs) David Dunning is the the guy who created this. He says, the first rule of the Dunning-Kruger club is that you don't know that you're a member of the Dunning-Kruger club and people miss that, right? So people tend to like, Dunning-Kruger is something that you'll hear often in cultural conversations where people will like point it out, like, oh, that guy's Dunning-Kruger. Like, you know, he thinks that he knows so much, right? And this idea that like, even you might think that you're not part of that club, but you are part of that club. Everyone is part of that club. And so if you think you're not part of the Dunning-Kruger club, like that's your first red flag, right? That we don't know, right? And so it's this awareness, this like flag in the ground that recognizes like, I don't know, I'm not sure, right? Um, And I think it's really interesting to use that lens when you're you know, like listening to podcasts, or you're reading books, like, how sure is this expert of their expertise, right? And if they are so sure that they might not think that they're part of the Stenning Kruger Club, like, that to me is, is a sign, right? And I mean, especially in the softer realms, if you will, right, especially in the realms of how to be in this world, or how to show up in this world, right? It's a personal dance, as you we just were talking about a real recognition that there is a ebb and flow in a in a conversation that's happening, right? And so one person's conversation is not, not going to be the same for other people's conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And continuing in the Dunning-Kruger theme, um, you share Austin Cleon's Dunning-Kruger prayer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I can share that. Yeah. Austin Kleon is a very um, famed writer in the arts as well, too. So he actually, if you look this up, you could probably find a beautiful little thing to print out and have. So Austin Kleon says, let, it's his Dunning-Kruger prayer is what he calls it. He says, let me be smart enough to know how dumb I am and give me the courage to carry on anyways. And I think that's like really quite beautiful, right? To know Mm. that like, I don't know. And the purpose isn't to necessarily know, which again, is an ironic, it's not ironic because it needs to, I think I've positioned it well in the book, but obviously I'm talking about creative knowing, but when we think about knowing as a destination versus a process that that changes things right and so i'm talking about knowing as a process and uh austin cleon's talking about like yeah like i'm just going to recognize how little i know and just keep moving ahead and not not feel as though i'm going to reach some destination i'm going to have some great conclusion that sort of thing right yeah exactly and you actually share a lot of stories of people's experience of having their perceptual framework radically altered by a particular experience. I mean, there are numerous examples. And by the way, I would love for you to to tell any stories that come to mind at any point along the way. And Mm -hmm. there's one where um, you talk about Charlotte Joko Beck's way of of seeing the, the Sisyphus story, which is a story that I read about, you know, Albert Camus' book, The Myth of Sisyphus, when I was in high school, and it had a pretty strong effect on me. And could you talk about the implications of looking at old stories and seeing them very differently, like looking at the world beyond the like picket fences of our mind's known mm-hmm. sense of the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the the Sisyphus story is, I think, the first story in the book. I'll just preface it this. Part one of the book is like a traditional nonfiction read, right? Where it's like, what is creative knowing? What is creative mindfulness? And in part two of the book is where I unpack different principles of mindfulness and just have filled it with stories, right? And so some of them are my stories from my creative practice, and some of them are stories from clients otherwise, and, and from different culture and that sort of thing. So that's the stories that you're referring to. So I tell a story personally about myself and my relationship to the story of Sisyphus. So in this story, I talk about how I can remember the exact time and space where I was, where I read Charlotte Jokobeck's interpretation of Sisyphus. I was culturally aware of Sisyphus prior to that. Sisyphus, for those of you who maybe need a refresher or don't know, is, you know, ancient Greek myth where Sisyphus had done something to really make the gods mad. I think he kept coming back to life. He cheated death. And so they were really, really angry at him and they wanted to punish him. And so the idea is is that Sisyphus for all of time and eternity is pushing a giant boulder up to the top of a hill. And as soon as he reaches the top of the hill, the boulder comes tumbling down the other side and Sisyphus has to follow the boulder down and and push the boulder up the hill again and again. So he's in this endless cycle of pushing the boulder up. And just when he thinks he's going to reach the top, basically he's reset. And so this notion, yeah, Camus is the one who probably made this story very famous. He's got a whole essay around uh, Sisyphus. And, you know, Camus' understanding of it is about like the absurdity of life, right? That like, you know, how crazy it is to think that we could be in control, right? That there, there's always going to be this kind of up and down and ebb and flow. And so this relationship that one might have, this absurdist philosophy that one might have to it. But Charlotte Joko Bex, I'm just going to read 
her interpretation because she says it so brilliantly and then I'll just tell you how it fits into the story. So this is, I was sitting under an apple tree in my backyard. I'd just been newly married. I was like thinking like, oh, I've arrived. This is it. This is so great. And I'm reading this Zen book. And she says, like Sisyphus, we're all just doing what we're doing moment by moment. But to that activity, we add judgments, ideas. Hell lies not in pushing the rock but in thinking about it, in creating ideas of hope and disappointment, in wondering if we will finally get the rock to stay to the top. So her deeper interpretation of this story, this metaphor, as though the challenge really is the judgments that we layer to it. So, you know, culturally, we'll often hear people talk about Sisyphus as like, poor Sisyphus, right? He's struggling. We'll see him just like, you know, in images, just grinding away, that sort of thing. And then this point of despair as the rock falls. But what Joko Beck is saying is that why do we need to add the label of him, you know, struggling as he's pushing up and feeling the despair as he falls down? Like that's where the power for Sisyphus is. So I tell this story in the context of, you know, this moment of me under the apple tree feeling like I've arrived in my life. And then, you know, not long afterwards, having that marriage unravel and, you know, cut to me and my son looking for holy objects, trying to make a new understanding of what our family is going to be. Right. And then I bring this around to this notion of Sisyphus, who's just kind of sat with me. Sisyphus has been this kind of little voice in my shoulder ever since, kind of tempting me to be like, you know, Rachel, you're doing it again. You think that you've arrived. You think that you're here, but, you know, be careful, right? You think you think that you know. You think you know your husband. You think you know your kid. You think, you know, you think you've got this figured out. Like, just wait, like, just wait. So I kind of have this voice in my head. And, and then I tell it in the context of like the pandemic too, right? So the pandemic comes and ushers us all in. And, and, you know, I like to think of it as like Sisyphus delivering that on my plate being like, Oh, you thought you were had this all figured out and your life was going to go this way. Well, now it's not going to go this way. And so Early on in the pandemic, when that chaos was kind of all unfolding and I was in lockdown, I really decided to kind of lean into the chaos and the uncertainty and that not knowing place that all of us were in. And I cultivated uh, intentionally a creative project for me to make many abstract paintings, kind of really starting with movement. So really moving my body and letting the movements kind of dictate the abstract marks and then writing a poem on the other side of it. And that became a place for me to embrace the chaos and the not knowing, as I think Sisyphus is always reminding me to do and be with that through my art as a place to, you know, the world was crazy outside and I could have went inside and made something really structured or really, you know, used my art practice to kind of do something more cognitive where I felt like safe and like, I know how this is going to go, but I, I tried to lean into it and use my art practice to mirror what was happening in the outside world so that I could start to become accustomed to the chaos of it. Right. And so, yeah, Sisyphus has really been an image for me. I'll just add, I don't have this in the book, but not long after I finished writing the book, my father passed away about a month afterwards and readers in the book will see that I'm kind of coming very close to knowing I'm going to have to say goodbye to him in a number of spots, but he passed away about a a month afterwards. And so I actually went out and got a tattoo on my arm of Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill and used my father's handwriting to write the words, this is it on my wrist and with the image of Sisyphus below, because Sisyphus was something that was really significant for my father as well too, right? So kind of an ongoing nature to that story as well, adding to it. 
So it's interesting how that correlates with the notion of, you know, life is going to have its moments of pain and trauma, but we don't need to add suffering on top of those experiences. Mm -hmm. Pretty deep, right? Like pretty, I mean, pretty hard to do in some ways, right? But I think that's the power of the non-judgmental element to mindfulness, right? Is that we can choose, right? And and I'll just tell you too, even in losing my father, right? Like, you know, he died too young and he suffered along the way. And, you know, I leaned into my art really hard. I have a whole chapter around an image around fear and my fear of losing him and stuff. But, you know, I, I kept along the way really trying to remind myself, like, I get to choose how I experience this grief, right? Like, and I don't have to I don't have to label it as tragic. I don't have to label it. I can, I can just celebrate him or I can just celebrate my relationship with him. And I can just recognize that the time has ended. And I, you know what, like, I think I've done a pretty good job of that. I feel like, you know, it's been almost a year since he's passed. And certainly my art helped me in so many ways to kind of move towards that grief. But that label of how I, the feelings were there, but, but how I chose to kind of label them and the opportunity to help me lean into whichever story I wanted to about that. Right. And I, I feel like that really served me. Yeah. And there's a practice that you present in the book of imagining one part of our life on one side of us, and then imagining where we're aiming to go on the other or something we're aspiring to on the other Mm -hmm. and to create a kind of dynamic tension that we can play with in a sense. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think the piece around the imagination with the invitation to that is to kind of, like I said earlier, like kind of lay it all out on the table. Right. And yeah, I think we use the words, what if, right? Like, what if this was happening as, you know, what if this was actually a, a blessing or what if this is, what if this was preparing me for something or, you know, so the idea that like, maybe I don't know, maybe I don't have all the information I need right now to know if this is a bad or a good thing. Right. And so this is, again, where we can intentionally tap on our imagination. And I think the process is really to challenge yourself to think about like, you know, what if losing my father was actually the best thing that could ever happen right now? Right. And as harsh as that might sound, or as crazy as that might sound like that, when we challenge and we intentionally use our imaginations to think up other kind of universes, right? We can see that, oh, maybe I don't fully understand this right here now. Maybe I can't, maybe I don't, I can't judge this right now because there's actually, you know, and it's not that we need to like ascribe to the what if, right? It's not that it's just the process is about softening the attachment to it, right? Is about kind of recognizing that there's many ways to be many ways to do many different labels and interpretations that we can have. And so to embrace that rather than sitting with the one thing that we think we've already, you know, known or understand, right? Yeah. And kind of building up our imaginal muscles so that we can actually bring in like a whole new dimension into the way we relate to everything in our lives. Yeah. In the story that I tell kind of prior to the prompt that you're talking about around the what if in the imagination, um, I, I kind of land on this image of a moth, right? Where I had the, actually the image had come to me first and then my interpretation of it had changed later, right? And the moth really became this like symbol where through one of my oldest son kind of in his like 
fact science brain kind of telling me about, you know, all these things we don't know in the world and that sort of thing. He's telling me like, you know, oh, you know, there's really no way to define what a moth is and what it isn't, you know, like some people think it's because moths come out at night and other ones come into the day, but actually there's lots of moths that come out in the day. And like, you know, he's kind of just ran down this whole piece around like, you know, the moth defies category like the more you try to find a category of what moth is the less categorization you know it will you'll always find an example that you know will sit outside of that realm right and so that symbol of the moth for me became that piece around feeling non-attached to again losing my father and like other other things that I was facing with right was like maybe I don't understand this right now right and so the the process is really about inviting your own symbol to come forward, right? And like, so this idea, these thinking, sometimes they just settle, they kind of want to naturally sit in an image or a story or a symbol or something like that, right? And so again, my symbol was the moth, but your symbol might be something completely different, right? That helps you understand whatever it is you need to do in the context. I'm talking with Rachel Rose. She's the author of Creating Stillness, Mindful Art Practices and Stories for Navigating Anxiety, Stress, and Fear. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. A symbol that you can viscerally feel a connection to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it can serve you, you know, you could like put it up somewhere, right? Like, I mean, that's often what I'm encouraging people to do is like, you know, like find the symbol or find whatever and like put it up and watch as your relationship to that symbol changes too, right? Because what it means to you when you first settle on it, it it won't mean the same thing to you in like, you know, one year, five years, 10 years, the relationship and the story of it will keep evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sort of a way of opening up these kind of almost like, ritualistic doorways that can create the kind of structure that we lack in our culture, the kind of initiatory process of maturing, because there's something about our modern culture that seems to lack any element of that kind of process of maturation other than the linear progression of age. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, we really are I mean, I guess you and I are speaking to this from like the Western culture. So I'm recognizing that not every, you know, that even just in my, where I am right now, like indigenous cultures that I, you know, Blackfoot peoples or wherever I am, like have different relationships to some of these things for sure. Right. But where you and I are sitting in the Western cultural context of, you know, that is certainly the case, right? We are being told to figure it out, to get it, to, you know, plant your flag in the ground and know what it is, right? And and the reality is, is I think a lot of our suffering comes from those things that are inevitable parts of life that are pushing back against us, like death, right? Like the fact that we can't control our existence. I think that's where a lot of our anxiety and our mental health comes from, right? Yeah. I just think our society is just really set people up for so much failure around it, right? I just think there is such a, like, again, the pieces around attachment and judgment, these pieces that I have just found so much wisdom and so much like peace with the ways, the few and little ways so far that I've been able to embrace them in my life. Like, I just feel like that's often what's missing for people, right? Is that we are, we are just being conditioned to, to want to figure it out and to resist so much of what is life and rather than kind of ride the waves of life and ebb and flow. And so I know this is my jam. This is the way I think about it, but I just think creativity is just something so 
There's so much surrender in creativity. There is so much letting go that can happen in creativity. It's just such a wonderful tool to prime us to reevaluate how we've been showing up in life, right? Yeah, and that reminds me of a wonderful quote that you share from Kurt Vonnegut, who says, we're here on this earth to fart around and don't let anybody tell you differently. Yeah, Vonnegut's the best. Like, (laughs) that quote is so great. And I would encourage your listeners to go out. I have the reference in the book, but that quote comes from a speech that he gave, like a graduation speech to a bunch of university students. And it's so brilliant to watch it in the context because, you know, here you have this great accomplished author and these students are all about to go off and launch into the universe and they all have, you know, big dreams and high hopes. And he spends like 10 minutes talking about how like, you know, I woke up one morning and I knew I needed to get some mail out. And so, you know, I was looking for the stamps and my wife told me this, right. And he really like, elongates this like kind of everyday mundane process of trying to get down to the post office to like mail these letters and you know it's Vonnegut so it's funny and it's there's little quippy bits along the way it's very entertaining but I think everybody who's watching it has this moment where they're like what like what where's he going with this what's happening with this like what's the point of this and then in classic Vonnegut way, like, you know, the last sentence is what that quote that you just talked about is like, you know, this is the purpose of life. It's just to fart around and like spend your morning going to the post office. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. And so when the pretense and the hype and the context of having this brilliant author come and spend all this time kind of telling you the most mundane thing and then telling you to fart around, I just think that is brilliant. I just think that was like, you know, this is why Vonnegut is a master, right? Is he played with the whole context of how we can do that. And there's so much wisdom in it, right? In the face of these students about to go off and just so ambitious, and not to say there's anything wrong with that ambition or launching off, but, you know, to remember that it's like the mundane pieces that like, this is your life right now, standing in line at the post office, right? You know, like, cleaning your dishes, doing whatever, like this is life as well, right? This is it. Every element of life is it, right? So I love that. I love that. It's worth watching. Mm. And this sort of connects with something you talk about in the last chapter of your book, where you talk about the patience of presence. Mm -hmm. The paradox. Yeah, like a paradox around patience, right? And that like the forever and now are together, right? And so Yeah, this concept is something that I'm really just starting, you know, like my writing of it was kind of me just like just starting to be able to put my finger on something bigger. So I'll tell you one of the stories that I tell in the context of that chapter, and then maybe try to kind of talk about that point. So there is something called the Future Library, this beautiful art project. I'm so glad you're going to talk about that. Yeah. 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 Isn't it brilliant? Yeah. So Katie Patterson is the name of the artist who's doing it. And so basically what it is, is in 2014, she started this and they planted 1000 trees outside of Norway. And so the trees were planted with the purpose of recognizing that they are going to reach maturation in 100 years, they're going to cut down those trees, and they're going to use those trees to print a book. So she will not be here when this project ends. This is like a land trust where these trees are here. But each year for the 100 years, they're inviting authors to submit a work to be part of this future library book. And so, you know, like Margaret Atwood is one of the writers who's contributed. Lots of other kind of like, you know, well-known writers have contributed. 
but nobody is reading those pieces. Those pieces sit in this vault waiting to be published, right? So this whole idea that the expressions are happening in the now, the intention is happening in the now, but none of the contributors, well, most of the contributors to this project, the, the authors, I suppose, from the last you know couple decades, reaching into the 100 years, will be around to see it into fruition. But most of these people, especially the architects of this project, will never, ever be able to reach fruition with this, right? So it's this beautiful, beautiful piece around literally planting seeds for the future, right? And that these expressions, these written pieces that the writers are submitting are relevant to the now and, you know, how will others read and see these pieces 100 years from now, right? And so to me, this is just such a beautiful example of the paradox of patience, right? And the paradox of patience is that like, we have to be able to hold the forever and now at the same time in each moment, right? So, you know, I suppose an easier way to say this is that, you know, we've got this notion of like the goldfish swimming around the bowl just in the moment, you know, thinking food, whatever, right? Like we don't want to just be in the now, right? We do. We want to be attuned to our surroundings and mindful and aware of what's happening as much as we can moment to moment and hold space to do that. But we also really want to be able to hold a space in the now for the future, right? And and this is like intention. This is where like hopes and dreams and imagination and, and relationships, all of those sorts of things happen too, right? So this notion that we need to be able to kind of do both in each moment, right, is hold a space for whatever's going to happen in the future that we don't know, right? But we can still shape, we can still offer our intention and our hope to move us towards those hopes. It's just that we are less attached to the outcome of them, right? And going back to this future library project, like, yeah, like this artist has totally surrendered whatever's happening in the future of this, but she is still working towards the future of it, if that makes sense, right? Is it's like she is very much in service of the future in the now, but she has completely divorced herself from the outcome of it. And it feels not attached to how this will come together in the end. Yeah, I really loved that whole thing. It can be difficult to wrap our minds around it at times, particularly when we're attached to a particular outcome or a particular notion. But yeah, the paradox of the present moment of holding that dynamic tension that we're actually only temporary here, not only in this life, but in this moment. And at the same time, we are an integral part of all that is. So, you know, it's a wonderful dynamic to wrap our mind around and to experience it in a more embodied way as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like I said, I think I'm just kind of starting to put my finger on the pulse of this, right? Like it's really, this is like kind of a new insight for me or a new kind of page turned for me. And so I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I know there's something there, right? One of the other stories I tell to kind of outline this is um, I talk about Emily Dickinson and how prolific she was, right? Like this, the woman was just writing poems and poems and poems like constantly in a time and a space where poetry and female writers you know, did not matter. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to publish her, right? She was, she was really struggling to be recognized for what she was doing. And when you read Emily Dickinson's work, she very much is writing about the present moment. She is writing about her garden, she's writing about her feelings, like her poems are very much meditations of the moment, right? And so she struggled to, 
you know, to publish, she had submitted her stuff and was, you know, getting many, many, many rejections, but it never deterred her. She still went out and used her poetry as a way to kind of attune to the moment and it it never slowed her down. And after she asked her sister, after she passed, she's, you know, her wishes were to have her sister burn all of her works, but her sister didn't and instead submitted some of her works further on down the line where people were like, oh, this is brilliant, right? And so Emily Dickinson never knew that she was going to have that she is what she is now, right? Like she doesn't know that she's considered to be one of the most important poets of that time and one of the most important female poets, right? But you know, it's interesting because maybe because she didn't know that was why she was so able to attune to the moment and her poems are so vulnerable and attuned to what's going on. But it's an interesting thing to think about in the context of her life that even after her death, her story wasn't done. Right. Like even after her death and her story is still unfolding in these ways, the meaning and the sense of her life is still unfolding. And so to think in that kind of long, long term connection of ourselves is pretty profound. Yeah. And it's interesting how she didn't feel the need, at least not in the way that most of us do, of being witnessed. Right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And being witnessed is is actually an important element in your book. It's the final piece in your creative processes that you share at the end of each chapter. And it made me think of how in traditional cultures, being witnessed is an essential part of one going through the initiation process that the person who who goes through these rites of initiation need to be witnessed by the whole community or they are witnessed by the whole community as having achieved this stage or landmark in one's life. And that that is a very powerful experience for each person who goes through these rites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so the witnessing piece, you're right. It's the thing that I ask people to do. So as you make your creation, you know, you do your own private process, you're attuning to it. And then I encourage people to find a safe witness. And I think that who the witness is really does matter. This isn't just like putting something on Facebook. This isn't just like, you know, dumping this somewhere else. The witness is somebody who really can hold space for the process, right? So the witness isn't somebody who's going to be like, uh, that's weird and ugly. I don't understand it, right? The witness is somebody who can be like, oh, tell me about the process. Like, what does this mean for you? What does this look like? And it can be really tempting to like not share your work, right? Or not share the, you know, and and not everything needs to be shared too, right? I mean, there are, or, or immediately, it doesn't need to be shared immediately too, right? Sometimes we can, we can hold some time and space for ourselves for sure. But there is something significant that happens when we show it, when we speak to it, when we stand there and own it, so to speak, in a, in a way where somebody else is seeing it, right? It's a, it's a very powerful, powerful thing. And so it's something I really encourage people to lean into in the process. Like, I don't know, have you, what you were saying, you were doing some of the creative prompts. Have you had anybody witness any of your things? It's funny that you asked me that because I think that was the thing that I had the most resistance to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of all. It's like, I don't feel like I want to share these things. And because of the way I go through these processes myself, I do them internally. And I, mm-hmm. for the most part, I don't want to come out and open my eyes to write things down or to actually engage in the physical activity of some of the art making or creativity or you know using different physical media. 
I kind of joking, I laughed at myself thinking, oh, I'm cheating. I'm doing it internally <laughs> in my imagination. And that way I don't have to share it with anybody else. I'm not subject to anybody else's judgments or even my own. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of, it's sort of like Sisyphus cheating death in a way. I'm, I'm cheating. I'm cheating a certain aspect or a certain element that most people would have to go through during this process. Like sharing something like this with another person could be quite scary. For sure. Absolutely. But what I would say to just hearing you speak is you are exemplifying for us right now, that observation part, right? So you have stepped into these processes and even in a way right now, I'm witnessing you because you are having to speak to it, right? And so what I'm hearing you say is that there is like something very scary, something very vulnerable, um, that you felt like you're cheating, that sort of thing. And like almost a questioning as to like, you know, do I need to, what I want to, is this right? Is this wrong? Right. This, and that's the beautiful part of like this, you're, you're doing the beautiful work of observation. You're noticing right now, just even as you're sharing with me, how you're showing up to this creative process and in doing so, you just are learning more about yourself, right? You're, you're noticing how, what feels safe for you, what doesn't feel safe for you, you know, where the sense might be, where, where there might be a little bit of something left right and so i mean even just talking about it right here i think is is in a way witnessing but maybe you don't need to have it witnessed maybe maybe that observation that you can do in your process that you just role modeled for us all so nicely is enough for you to find sense and to find meaning i suspect that is the case in my case but but i don't know I mean, you wouldn't know unless you actually had somebody witness it right? to know like, and, and maybe that's the case too, right? And maybe some, for some folks, they're like, you know what, these, these seven or eight, these are private, but you know what, this one, I think I could share with this person, right? Or even just to talk about like, you know, I, I read this book and I'm doing this thing and I'm, it's interesting. I, you know, like even just to kind of like test the waters a bit with like maybe one of them that might feel safe. It'd be interesting to see if it changes the experience of it or if it deepens it, or if you regret it, you know, again, I do really emphasize you do have to have the right witness though. Yeah. And I actually love having the opportunity to do this kind of self-exploration. And that was another thing that I loved about your book, particularly the second half of the book was that I had a continual experience of doing that with myself. And that's one of the things that I get to do when I'm curled up in bed reading is I'm right there. I can close my eyes and I can go inside right there in the moment. And it just makes reading a much richer experience. And then, of course, I also reflected on how, well, I'm putting out my interviews like I'm doing with you out mm -hmm. into the public domain to be witnessed. Although it's a little different because, you know, I've been doing this for a number of years and this is what I'm doing. So for me, the vulnerability in this is as I'm entering into the interview, I'm usually working with the anxiety of, am I going to fall flat on my face in this one? Am I going to screw this one up? But the whole purpose of my doing this is to share it with others, not so much to be witnessed, but to share it. But then again, as you had invited me to share my experience, I love revealing myself in these ways because it, it's an opportunity to make myself vulnerable. So I can relate to the importance of being witnessed. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think you're also just role modeling for us right now so beautifully about like being in the process. You and I have just been in this process for an hour and a half with one another sharing, having a dialogue, and then we can release ourselves from it, right? Like, you know, I know you'll have to like do some editing and that sort of thing afterwards, but you're right. Like our attachment to the outcome of this is that like, we don't have it, right? It's like, we did it. It was a moment. Here we are and we'll share it for others. But, you know, neither one of us expects that this is going to like, <laughs> move mountains or something otherwise right it, we're just showing up in the moment and then releasing ourselves afterwards and we you know what together right now you and I just made something that wasn't there before right so we just engaged in a creative act with one another yeah it's been such a delight to talk with you yes for sure thank you so much for having me and for really sinking into the book too I really appreciate that as well too so thank you that was Rachel Rose She's an educator, writer, and contemplative artist fusing mindfulness practices with the creative arts. She's a registered expressive arts consultant and educator with the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. And through her educational portal, Workshop Muse, she invites people to come learn about creative knowing as well as how to practice creative mindfulness in their own lives. And Rachel Rose is the author of this book that we've been talking about. Creating Stillness, Mindful Art Practices and Stories for Navigating Anxiety, Stress, and Fear. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Looking out at a sky the same one as mine The room shakes with a train
light touches on keys of a song flecks in space a softest trace droplets of water your loving sons and daughters he's dreaming Breathless walk and swim